So brothers and sisters, this, this, this text is primarily about two relationships. It's about the union of the Father and the Son and the union between Christ and believers. And this is all summed up in what is my favorite biblical image for union with Christ, the image of the vine and the branches. And there are plenty of biblical images for union, for union with Christ. You've got the example of the king and the subject, and that's, that's, that's referring to what's called political union. That is, that we ought to be united with Christ insofar as we're, we're pointed toward the same goal. So Jesus ministered to the poor and the marginalized, so should we. Jesus demands complete and total allegiance above all others, so we should give it. It's a, it's a, there's, a, there's a political union between us and the Lord. We have the image of marriage. We have the image of the foundation and a building. We have the image of Christ as the head and us as the body. Each of these metaphors point to some aspect of our relationship with Christ. But the one addressed here in John 15 is a reference to what can be called vital union with Christ, life-giving union with Christ. So three questions that we'll consider over the course of our time together. What, what does that mean? Why does it matter? And how do you get it? So Jesus begins this text by outlining his relationship with the Father. This is John 15, verses 1 to 4. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. One of the things that you'll note about this, about this text is that the father, the gardener, really only does one thing in this passage— he cuts. But he does it one of two ways. He either cuts you up or he cuts you off. And the context of this verse is that it's much better to be cut up than it is to be cut off. There, there, there's, there, there's such a thing as healthy, healthy introspection, healthy assessment of your life, of your priorities, of your actions, of your thoughts. And what Jesus is saying here is that the Father is concerned with one thing, the health of the whole plant. Now, the vine itself is perfectly healthy, and not, and not just healthy. The vine actually gives life to the other branches, something I'm going to explain in, in, in a little bit. But there are two types of branches. There are branches that bear fruit and branches that don't. And this, dear brothers and sisters, is what the visible church looks like. There are some in our midst who, who bear fruit of holiness, of, of humility, who bear fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But there are others in our midst who don't show that fruit. And Jesus is saying that the Father is going to prune or cut up the former and cut off the latter. You'll note the nature of that, 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 that fruit, as I just described it, from, from Galatians, the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, and so on. None of those things are miraculous in the, like, in the way that we normally think about it. In Matthew 7, 21 to 23, some of the most like, terrifying verses of Scripture, Jesus addresses this in, in drawing the distinction between true and false disciples. He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my, of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. 
On what basis does Jesus say this? Well, right before this passage, he's been talking about true and false prophets. And he says that by their fruit, you will recognize the false ones. Good trees bear good fruit. Bad trees bear bad fruit. And I think there's part of us that, that, that buys that. But I want us to get a little, bit, a little bit deeper. Because one of the ways that we can go wrong when we think about these verses is if we think about fruit in the way that the world thinks about it, rather than the way that Christ does. So one of the most frustrating things that I hear when, um, when folks are justifying unhealthy church leadership is, well, look at, look at how much fruit comes out of their ministry, often referring to numbers. Look, I mean, they may be terrible people who have said terrible things from positions of influence, but, but at least they get the gospel right. But do they, though? If the, if the ministry is filled with pride and hate and harshness and lack of self-control, that sounds precisely like the kind of bad fruit that Jesus is talking about. See, numbers, numbers are not fruit. Ten people committed to, to, committed to Christ's radical call to discipleship are infinitely more fruitful than a million people gathered around saying, Lord, Lord, performing miracles without love. The fruit of the former lasts. The fruit of the latter ends in destruction. But, 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 but even if you do bear good fruit, however, that, that doesn't end. Because remember, if you're, if you're not being cut off, you're being cut up, which sounds painful. Uh, because it, it kind of is. Um, when, what Jesus is saying here is that the Lord loves you too much to let you just bear a little bit of fruit. He wants you to bear a lot of fruit. And so not just, not just a little bit of love and a little bit of joy and a little bit of peace. He wants you to bear a lot of those things, which means that by the Spirit, he's going to keep cutting at you and pruning you so that that happens. That's what the love and the discipline of the Lord looks like. But that's not all. See, your fir- because chances are your first response to this is going to be self-inspection. Okay, like, do I, do I exhibit this fruit? But, 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 but Jesus is also calling us to go a little deeper than even that level of self-inspection. Because Jesus is moving from, from talking about his relationship with his father to our relationship with him. So he's the vine, we're the branches. And these first few verses, verses 1 to 4, are focused on whether or not we bear fruit. But verses 5 to 8 focus on something a little bit different. I want you to pay attention to the ifs in this passage. Chapter 15 verses 5 to 8. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Jesus is telling us to back up up a little bit in our thinking. Because the first question is not whether or not you bear fruit. The first question is where you're getting your sap. Sap is basically, it's like the the blood of a tree. It runs up up through the trunk into the branches and gives the the branches strength. This vine branches metaphor is at at its core asking that question. Where do you seek strength? Where do you seek comfort? 
When you burn out, when, when folks frustrate you, when the daily grind of work wears away at you, when your children don't behave and you question whether you're really a good mom or really a good dad, when, when being single is lonely, when being married is lonely, where do you go? In the time when John is writing in, the, in, 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 in his Greco-Roman context, every, every house that you walk into would be full of shrines. And you would see these shrines everywhere you went. There's, there's the assumption that if there's something that you need, there's a God for it. Our idolatry is a little more subtle now. The gods and their shrines don't present themselves as such, but they're still gods. Gods of consumption, gods of self-aggrandizement, gods of technological distraction. So ask yourself, when I am most distressed and most vulnerable, where do I go for sap? Where do I, where do I tap in for strength? Do I, do I tap into the, to the sap of Instagram or Twitter? Sap that often ends up being more like poison. Do I, do I tap into particular relationships with people, some of which might not be as helpful as I might like? Do I tap into distractions? After all, it's much easier to ignore my problems than it is to face them. Jesus in these verses is telling us, hey, I'm the one you need to run to, because if you're not tapped into me, nothing you do matters. And there's the really controversial point. He says, remain in, remain in him and you bear fruit. Because outside of him, it's not the case that you like bear less fruit. Outside of him, you don't bear any fruit. You can do nothing apart from Christ. This is, this is why we gather. This is, this, is, this is why we gather to remind ourselves of the gospel. Because it's to remind ourselves that as much as we might think that we can do stuff on our own, Jesus says we can't. Like, you don't say you, like, you can do some stuff apart from... No, you can't do anything. So it's okay to feel weak, brothers and sisters. We, we are. We can't do it all. If, if you've had a laptop or a phone for, for a while, chances are its, it's battery has started to lose capacity. This is, this is the way that lithium-ion batteries work. The more, you, the more you discharge and charge them, the more their capacity diminishes. And so after a, after a few years, you could be dealing with like 70 to 80% capacity. But some of you know what it's like to have a laptop that can't hold a charge at all. Like it needs to be plugged in to function. This is how we are. It's not the case that like we've got reserve power so we can, we can run at full strength without being plugged in for a few hours, days, or maybe weeks, months. No, no, if we ain't plugged in, nothing works. Union with Christ is not a like, nice-to-have element of the Christian life. It's the very life-giving center of it. So the vine, branches image, communicates the same thing that the head-body image su su suggests. Because without a head, the body can't work at all. Like It's, a, it's, a gro it's grotesque, it's decapitated and useless. Similarly, the so-called Christian who isn't plugged into the vine doesn't bear fruit, and according to Jesus, is going to be picked up and thrown into the fire. Yikes. You, can, you and I can be as orthodox as we want. And, and I, orthodoxy is very, very important. But, but if it doesn't manifest itself in care for the poor and the marginalized, if it doesn't manifest itself in resistance to the domination and exploitation that, 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 that suffuses many of our human relationships, if it doesn't manifest itself in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, then hear me, your orthodoxy is useless. 
and not really orthodoxy. See, this is another thing that I, that I think, and I've done this, and so, so, so it, it's this thing that we like to do where we like to say that, you know, that orthodoxy and orthopraxy are both important, as though these two things are separable from one another. As though believing isn't a thing that we do. For, for example, if, if I say that I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and the eternal Son of God, that's not just like an intellectual thing that someone asks me and I just say, yes, I believe that. What it is is it's a life that you live. To say that Jesus is the eternal Son of God is to say, hey, if he says that I should be living in a particular way, acting in a particular way, thinking in a particular way, and I should be using these, these resources to do that, then I should be living, acting, and thinking in that way. Because he created me. Because he knows how I function best. See, there's no, there's no daylight between thinking and doing. They shape each other and reinforce one another. And what Jesus is getting at here is that the only way that you keep that process going of acting and thinking rightly is if you stay tapped into the vine. Stay tapped into the word. Stay tapped into the Holy Spirit. And verses 9 to 17 drive this point home even more forcefully. Jesus is essentially saying, the Father loves me. I love you. Love each other. You show that love by doing what I say. And what do I say? Verse 13, greater love has no one but this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. We talked about this a few, a few weeks ago. Love, love one another as Christ has loved you. It's difficult to build an alternative political economy of love, but Jesus repeats it here. That's the call. And then in verse 16, he says something that's a little bit mind-shattering. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. All right, we're going to need to slow down for these. First, you didn't choose him. He chose you. This is common throughout the scriptures, and it's the way that God deals with his people. He sets his affection on you, and he sets you apart, and you respond. It's what the scriptures call election. Now, one of the things that makes people nervous when they hear the word election is that they think of folks who, who see God's election as occasion for pride, which is exactly the opposite of God's intention. <laughs> When, when, when we look at Israel, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord is clear that like, God did not choose the people of Israel because they were awesome. In fact, they're small and stubborn and not that great. No, God chose them because he wanted to and because he wanted to use them as a beacon of his goodness to the world. And that's the way the Lord works. He repeats this method in this verse. Why does he choose folks? He chooses them so that they can bear fruit that lasts and also so that they can have whatever they want. I'm going to explain both of those things. The first point is that God sets his affection on you so that you would be the kind of person who loves the people of God and the world in ways that affect real, lasting change. That your love, your gentleness, your self-control, this fruit of the Spirit, these are not just nice things that are submitted to the world, but these are or, or submitted to the wind, but that, but that they are real tools in the hands of the Savior to change people's lives, to bring you into deeper union with Christ, and to bring others into that same mystical union. And the other thing is that like that fruit is impossible to exhibit alone. There's no test of your gentleness. 
like dealing with a harsh person. There's no test of your patience like dealing with people who get on your nerves. There's no opportunity for love apart from people who need to be loved. And apart from Christ, those things don't actually mean anything. I mean, they might be nice, but they don't go beyond being nice. But when they're done in Christ, we're looking at eternal consequences. Now, the second part is the controversial one, that Jesus chose you so that you might have whatever you ask for. So what's going on there? Does that, does that mean that if I, if I want $30 million, I just say the magic words and the Lord is obliged to give it to me? If I want a spouse, if I want, if I want to be miraculously healed from cancer, if I want any number of good things, all, all I have to do is ask? It's tempting. It's tempting to say that. But I think this verse is best understood in the light of the rest of Scripture. And Psalm 37 is an amazing psalm. But perhaps one of its most powerful portions is Psalm 37, 4, where the psalmist says, Delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, what's that verse saying? Well, in a nutshell, it's saying that when you, when you find your joy in the Lord, your desires start to change. You, you, you begin to want to be like him, to, to want to be like him in love, to, be, to want to be like him in patience, to want to be like him in joy. And, 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 and you begin to realize how much of his spirit you need, the fact that you need it daily. And you, and you begin to realize that, that the life-giving sap of the spirit is necessary to your life, whether you're, whether you're working construction, whether you're writing a dissertation, or whether you're caring for a baby. And, and in those moments, what you're also going to find is that God wants the same thing for you. God wants to share himself with you. He wants you to have his power. He wants you to have his patience. He wants you to have his love. And so then, then a feedback loop starts because you start to delight more in the Lord and he starts to, to delight even more in sharing more of himself with you. And then that goes on and on and on and on into eternity. That's what the life of mystical union with Christ looks like. The building of joy upon joy. And that might seem confusing to you because it might feel as though I've kind of heaped obligation upon obligation on top of you. You got to stay plugged in. You got you to keep inspecting yourself and looking for the fruit of the Spirit. And that can, seem, that can seem overwhelming. Some of you may come from backgrounds where this kind of introspection was backed up by calls for anxiety. It's one of the things that stressed Luther out a lot before he discovered the gospel of grace, he was, he was tormented by the constant presence of sin, feeling like he could never confess it all. But here's the thing about the good news of union with Christ. It doesn't tell you that you're better than you are, because you're not. You're, we're, we're, often, we're often worse than we think we are. But what it tells us is that Jesus, Jesus is better than we could ever hope. And he reaches out not in condemnation, but in invitation. He says, believe in me, be joined to me, and I offer you life-giving power. Yes, he calls us to obedience, but he doesn't do so as someone disconnected from the difficulty of obedience. Remember, he makes that call as the one who died for us to equip us to live the life that he's called us to. He didn't just die as a spectacle. He died and got up to set you up for, for a holy life. He died, he got up and ascended in order to send the Holy Spirit, God's very self, to dwell inside of you, 
to give you the very power and the resources that you need to live the Christian life. The power and the resources that you need to set others above yourself without fear. The power and the resources that you need to be willing to share everything you have with those who need it, especially the brothers and sisters in Christ. The power and the resources to bear really, really good fruit. Jesus also said these things, though, not to stress you out, but to bring you joy. It's what he said in verse 11. I have said these things to you so that my joy might be in you and so that your joy might be full or complete. This is what Jesus wants for you. This is what I want for you. This is what I want for me. Joy. Lasting, full, all-consuming joy. A joy that persists in the midst of persecution. A joy that persists in the midst of difficulty. A joy that persists even as I live a life of repentance. Even as the Lord continues to reveal to me my own inadequacy, I need a joy that can last even through that. You know what the most cheerful epistle in the New Testament is? It's Philippians. And you know where Paul is? He's in prison with like the actual threat of death at any moment. And yet that letter drips with both joy and contentment because this joy only comes by one way, who also happens to be the truth and the life. That joy only comes through Christ. This is a joy that only comes if we're tapped in to the vine. It only comes with the security of knowing that that because of what Christ has done for you, because of what he's promised to you, and because of the Spirit's work in you, you're free. And so my challenge to you this week is very simple. Tap in to the Lord. Find ways to commune with the Lord this week. When you you read the word, don't do it out, out of obligation. Do it expecting the Lord to fill you up. Do it expecting the Lord to reveal himself and his work in in you and through you throughout that day. When you you love your neighbors, when you juggle your kids, when when you go to work, don't think about those things as mundane, everyday things, because they're not. These are opportunities for the Father to prune you, for the Son to encourage you, and for the Holy Spirit to cultivate fruit in your life. See, because when your mind stays on those things, your life becomes re enchanted. Your life becomes exciting again because every, everything that you engage in becomes an opportunity for the Lord to show himself. And that's, and that's, and that's, and that's I think, one of, our, it's, 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 it's one of our issues. We just kind of go through the grind and assume that every day is just going to be like every other day. No, every day is an opportunity for you to bear life-giving fruit. It's an opportunity for the, Lord to, for the Lord to prune you and for the Lord to use his pruning of you to shape other people's lives. That's the good news of union with Christ, brothers and sisters. That our mystical connection with Christ is constant every moment of every day. And so in those moments, I want you to expect joy. Let's pray.